Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tennis troubles. Australian authorities investigate whether Djokovic lied on his entry form. Party problems. Boris Johnson faces fresh claims Downing Street broke COVID rules. And Powell's pricing pitch. The Fed chair says he will tackle inflation if he's given another term. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move live this week from London. As you've seen for a New Year's change of view, instead of Times Square Station, I'm seeing Waterloo in markets. Pacey Fed tightening has investors all askew. Jay Powell speaking before Congress today, a second term they must review. And in sports, Novak Djokovic hopping out of detention like, you guessed it, a kangaroo. But we're still not sure if an Australian Open title will be his to pursue. More on all this ahead. But first, U.S. stocks are creeping higher pre-market and Europe is in rally mode. All this after a truly manic Monday that saw the Nasdaq falling into correction territory. So we're talking down 10 percent from its recent highs before rallying back to finish the day with slight gains. This is classic buy on dip behavior. And it was tied at least yesterday to an easing of upward pressure on bond yields. And it was also supported by comments from JP Morgan suggesting that the tech tumble that we've seen in those stocks was overdone. CEO Jamie Dimon, however, warning that the Federal Reserve could raise interest rates more than four times this year to try and tame inflation. And as we discussed yesterday, analysts may believe that investors for now do not. Fed Chair Jay Powell's testimony before the Senate today is, of course, going to be key too. Alliance and Gramercy advisor Mohammed El Arian will be along the show later this hour with his take on the Fed's path and his fears of a market rattling policy mistake. OK, let's get to the drivers and the latest serve in Djokovic's tennis trials. After the drama in court, Novak Djokovic back on the court as he prepares for the Australian Open, even as nation's immigration minister considers whether to remove him from the country. And in a new twist, the Australian border force is investigating whether Djokovic submitted a false travel declaration ahead of his arrival there. Paula Hancocks is in Melbourne with all the details. Paula, great to have you with us once again. You promised us more twists and turns, and it seems we have them. Whoever, either he or someone else, filled in his immigration form, they said he wouldn't be travelling in the 14 days prior to flying to Australia. His social media account, which captures his travels, suggests otherwise. Talk us through what we're seeing today. Yeah, Julia, it is another twist that was unexpected. This is a traveller declaration which everybody has to fill out before coming into Australia at this point. You give your details, you give your COVID vaccination status and prove if you've been vaccinated, something Novak Djokovic would not have had to do as he is unvaccinated. But you also have to say if you are going to be travelling within Australia, going to a different state, and what your situation will be the 14 days before. Now, according to uh, this this investigation's ongoing, uh, 
uh, within the Australia Border Force, according to a source within that investigation, uh, saying that he had ticked the box no, saying he would not be travelling for 14 days before. And yet we are seeing on his social media and other photos uh, that, in fact, he was in both Spain and Serbia in the two weeks before arriving here. Now, it's not clear at this point who filled out uh, this uh, this form, whether it was Tennis Australia, the organisers of the tournament, whether it was Djokovic himself or someone within his team. But the fact is, uh, it is an official docu- document, it is an official declaration, uh, and there is this investigation to see if that false information was given. Now, we don't know also if it was just a simple error of the wrong box ticked, but the fact is Djokovic's uh, situation and stay here in Australia is tenuous uh, at best at this point, as we know the immigration minister is still considering whether or not he will personally step in and he will decide to revoke the visa himself. Julia? Yeah, and it's not clear whether admitting that he was going to travel to Spain or travel to Serbia would have automatically disqualified him from coming to Australia either, I believe. But obviously lying, and as you point out, we don't know whether it was a simple mistake or what happened, um, but lying is punishable, I believe, by up to 12 months in jail, I read. So the circus continues. Um, There's obviously no time limit on how long it takes the immigration minister to decide how he's going to act as far as Djokovic is uh, is concerned and whether he decides to revoke the visa again. Um, Do we know actually what's being considered under this specific section of the Immigration Act and, and perhaps what isn't in order to make this decision? Well, what the immigration minister is looking at at this point, uh, and we've spoken to his office as well, uh, Alex Hawke deciding whether or not there should be a decision, whether he should personally intervene to uh, to revoke this visa. Now, we know that the judge uh, decided that the procedural issues at the airport meant that uh, uh, that the, what happened there was, was incorrect and shouldn't have happened. So uh, the cancellation of the visa was revoked. Uh, but we, what uh, the, the minister himself is, is looking at that is something more specific. I mean, there are very many different reasons to revoke the uh, the visa, one of which is, uh, would this uh, cause damage to, to the people of Australia? Uh, could this cause disruption uh, to Australia itself? There are many different uh, elements to this that the minister could be considering. Now, we didn't hear anything this Tuesday. We uh, could hear something Wednesday. The assumption is, of course, they will be waiting to see what the investigation brings up from the Australia Border Force before making any definitive decision. The government itself has already been embarrassed by one decision going against its border force. So certainly they're going to want to make sure uh, that they have due process, which is what we're being told by the ministry, and make sure that they are making this uh, decision if they do decide to revoke the visa uh, in the best, under the best possible uh, conditions and to make sure that it couldn't then be reversed. Yes. So ball now in border force court keep aware of uh, who's got what and whose decision is uh, dominating at this current uh, juncture. Paula Hancocks, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. To China now. Another major city is entering strict lockdown. More than five million people in the city of Anyang are not allowed to leave their homes after a COVID outbreak. And over 4,000 students from one single school have been put into quarantine facilities. This stunning video shows children in full hazmat suits climbing into buses and being sent off to quarantine facilities, we believe. Selena Wang joins us with the latest. Selena, I call them stunning images. Just talk about those children first and foremost. I assume they've been tested for COVID. They've been found positive and are now off to quarantine. 
Yeah, Julia, it is stunning to see thousands of those students in full hazmat suit loading those buses to go to quarantine. But Julia, this is in line with China's zero COVID strategy. They've been doubling down on it and it relies on extensive quarantine measures, lockdowns and mass testings. This video from Anyang City is in China's central Henan province. After confirming a total of 84 COVID-19 cases, it is now putting its five and a half million residents into strict lockdown. People are banned from leaving their homes except to get tested for COVID-19. Now, this outbreak in Anyang is linked to a college student who tested positive for Omicron after traveling from Tianjin, which is a city hundreds of miles away from Henan. And that outbreak in Tianjin is especially concerning to authorities in Beijing. This is a city with close proximity to the capital, just 30 minutes away from Beijing by high-speed rail. This is, of course, the host of the Winter Olympics, now just weeks away in Tianjin. After finding local transmission of Omicron cases, they are now mass testing. It's 14 million residents. There are 29 residential communities under strict lockdown. Residents cannot leave the city without special permission, but it's not just in these areas. We are seeing these local flare-ups in places across China, and we are seeing strict reactions in response to each one. We've been discussing what's happening in Xi'an. They've been under strict lockdown, and it's 13 million residents since December 23rd. And we're continuing to see a stream of complaints and desperate stories of people who are struggling to get basic necessities, food, and people who are struggling to get medical attention. Hmm. Selena Wang, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that report there. A new nightmare on Downing Street for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson amid revelations of another party held while the country was in lockdown. A leaked email inviting dozens of staff to a bring your own booze quote event in the garden of number 10 in May of 2020. The sender, a top aide to Prime Minister Johnson, COVID rules at the time banned more than two people from different households meeting outside. Salma Abdelaziz joins us now. Salma, I've lost count of the number of people on social media sharing images of them way, way apart from members of their family, unable to speak to their elderly parents in care homes. There's a lot of discomfort, I think, and once again at number 10 as a result of this leak. Yet another accusation, Julia, in this dizzying list now Mm. of allegations of multiple social gatherings, some taking place in the summertime garden parties, allegedly others taking place in Christmas, all happening in 2020. I think the public has lost count, but the latest accusation comes in the form of a leaked email. This email shows one of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's top aides inviting about 100 Downing Street staffers to bring their own booze to the Downing Street garden. Come join us at 6 p.m., exclamation point. Except here's the issue, Julia. At the time, the country was under a very strict lockdown. A mixing of households was restricted to only two people and they had to meet outside. They had to remain at a distance. The The work guidance was very clear at that point. You should not meet with anyone unless it was absolutely necessary to meet them face-to-face. That was official guidance at the time. So of course here the concern is that this accusation shows yet another brazen violation of COVID rules by the very people who put those rules in place. Now Prime Minister Boris Johnson has refused to comment on this latest accusation on this leaked email uh, pending an investigation. But even that investigation, Julia, is mired in scandal. Originally the Prime Minister had tasked his cabinet secretary with probing these multiple social gatherings until it was found that the cabinet secretary himself had knowledge of a social gathering in his department and had to step aside. Now that's being handled by a senior civil servant, but you can imagine 
with or without the investigation, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is simply losing in the court of public opinion. There was a session in the House of Commons just last hour, uh, and a member of the Labour Party stood up and essentially accused the Prime Minister of lying yet again. There was more talk of those who lost their lives at that period in time. This is May 2020, the height of the pandemic, when many, many people were separated from their loved ones. So what we're seeing here is a Prime Minister who's taking yet another hit to his credibility, yet another hit to his reputation at a time when he should be handling the Omicron variant. Julia? Yeah, I was just Googling actually when Boris himself, the Prime Minister got, himself got sick with COVID and I believe it was in April of, of 2020. So what, less than a month before um, this party allegedly uh, took place. Do we know whether the Prime Minister was there or not? Has he said anything? Because again, he initially acted this with great outrage when, when these accusations were made about other gatherings. This is the larger concern here, Julia. Um, the BBC and other local media are reporting that, according to eyewitnesses they have spoken to, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his wife were at the party. Now, CNN has not independently verified that information. I'm simply telling you what is in the media here today, because that's exactly what people are reacting to. That's exactly why you're seeing the outrage here. Now, the Prime Minister has said, I cannot comment. There is an investigation that is ongoing, that is being handled by a senior civil servant, and I have to let that investigation play out. That's what the Prime Minister says. Mm. We've also heard again, with these multiple gatherings at times, uh, Downing Street saying, look, you're not looking at a party. What you're looking at is, yes, people with wine and cheese, but it's actually a meeting. It's a business meeting. And it's these types of responses, I think, that have really outraged critics of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, have really outraged, as uh, the Labour Party, the opposition Labour Party here says, have given that sense that the Prime Minister is lying yet again and lying publicly about something that is sort of difficult not to imagine at this point. We have photographs, we have videos, we have leaked emails, we have multiple media reports, and yet the Prime Minister continues to stay steadfast, continues to deny his presence, to deny his involvement in this. Again, you can only imagine how much that hits his own ability to lead a country, his own ability, his reputation, his credibility with the public when he's asking people to follow the rules. And there's these accusations out there that his government wasn't doing that. Julia? Yeah, Salma, you're laying it out. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> um, yes, Tuftimus of Party going on in your own garden. Mm. Salma Abdulaziz, thank you for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Kazakhstan's parliament has just confirmed a new prime minister. The former prime minister resigned last week amid violent protests that killed more than 160 people. This as Russian troops who were in the nation to help calm the situation are preparing to withdraw. Fred Plytgen has more from Kazakhstan's southern border. Kazakhstan's leadership appears to be trying to show that it's getting the situation in the country under control, but at the same time also continuing their crackdown on the people who participated in the protests that shook that country. Now, the president of Kazakhstan, Mr. Tokayev, he had his pick for new prime minister approved by Kazakhstan's parliament on Tuesday. At the same time, the authorities there also announced that the number of people detained in the wake of those protests had once again risen sharply. The authorities now saying that nearly 10,000 people have been detained, and that that number has been continuously steeply rising over the past couple of days. The authorities are also saying that more than 160 people were killed in those protests and the vast majority of those, more than 100 people in one town, and that is the town of Almaty. That, of course, is also the place where we saw some of the worst violence as those protests were taking place with rioters in the streets going into government buildings. But at the same time, also uh, Kazakhstani security forces on the ground there as well, sweeping those areas 
and in some places apparently opening fire as well. Meanwhile, the Kazakhstani government is saying that those international forces that they've uh, called in, of course, led by Russian forces, that their mission has been complete and that their withdrawal will start in two days. However, that withdrawal is going to take at least 10 days to complete if things go according to plan. Fred Pleitkin, CNN at the Kyrgyz-Kazakhstan border. Russia says Monday's first round of security talks with the United States didn't provide significant reason for optimism. Senior officials met to discuss Russia's troop buildup near Ukraine, but the meeting ended without breakthroughs. The Kremlin says there will be more talks this week, which should give a better idea of where things are going. The United Nations is requesting $4.4 billion in urgent aid for Afghanistan. It's the largest humanitarian appeal in the UN has ever made for a single nation. It says the money is needed to help 22 million people inside Afghanistan and more than 5 million people who fled to nearby countries. So to come here on First Move, Air Asia's digital business takes flight, the CEO on his ambitions for the super app and the outlook for travel in 2020. And from working with Elon Musk to powering the vehicles of tomorrow, we speak to the co-founder of Tesla about his latest venture. Stay with us. That's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move here in London. It's almost time for tea or, in my case, coffee. On Wall Street, investors, though, feeling less than carefree after a day of stunning volatility. U.S. futures turning lower, meanwhile. All this after Monday's wild price swings that saw tech stocks drop more than 2.5% overall, only to rally back sharply and close with gains. A pause in the relentless rise of 10-year bond yields in particular, helping give tech the room to move higher, perhaps, on Monday. Yields have risen to levels not seen since the start of the 2020 lockdowns as investors begin pricing in more aggressive Federal Reserve tightening to help battle rising prices. Polls, in fact, show Americans are now more concerned about rising prices than they are about COVID. Fed Chair Powell will surely be forced to play up the Fed's inflation-fighting efforts during second-term confirmation hearings in Washington today. The market's big fear, a Fed policy mistake if officials pull support too quickly. Mohamed Alarian joins us now. He's the advisor at Allianz and Gramercy Funds and also president of Queen's College, Cambridge University. Mohamed, great to have you on the show as always. Can't help but feel long gone is that patient on pricing Powell. And we're going to hear that today. And we've already seen the statement that reflects that. But the market's already been reacting to the most recent Fed minutes and the timetable for support and retrenchment has accelerated. Oh, absolutely, Julia. We saw a massive move in consensus in the last few days. Um, the average analyst on Wall Street now expects four rate hikes this year, expects the ending of asset purchases, and in addition, expects the Fed to start contracting its balance sheet. So it is night and day in terms of where expectations are for Fed policy between now and just a month ago. I mean, this is what you were warning about for months and months and months. You said if we left this too late, there was going to have to be a point where suddenly the Fed had three major policy moves to do, whether it's raising rates, it's ending the asset purchases, and then it's reducing the balance sheet. And we're sort of seeing what you saw in a crystal ball months ago. And it's sad because this was predictable. And now we risk bunching up three contractionary monetary measures at a time when there are other things in terms of headwinds to the economy. This was avoidable. 
Um, the problem is that the Fed was in love with this notion of transitory inflation for so long that it missed one window after the other. And now it has to play what they call in the US hurry up offense, which means you have to get a lot of stuff done. But the risk of a mistake goes up when you're rushing like this. Do you think the discussions were being had at the Federal Reserve, even behind the scenes, and some part of this is communication and how they were communicating it to the market because the market's got so used to the intrinsic support that's been provided that they were worried about spooking, particularly given that the uncertainty with COVID is the, is the backdrop? Yeah, I think that's an element. Um, they remember what happened in 2013 with the so-called taper tantrum where the market got very upset at this notion that you, the Fed was going to reduce its support. They remember how Chair Powell had to do a very embarrassing U-turn in 2019. So I suspect that had something to do with it. The problem now is that you risk upsetting markets even more. Mm. So basically what the Fed did, it gave markets an amazing 2021, third straight year of double-digit return, in exchange for more uncertain outlook for the economy, policy and the markets in 2022. Because the investor behaviour aspect of this is crucially important. And you and I have discussed it many times, riding the wave and surfing the sloshing liquidity that we've seen now for, for years and the fear of missing out. Do you think that based on what we're seeing in terms of what the Federal Reserve is saying and now has to do, what the data is telling us the economy can withstand, but also the idea of this buy on dip mentality that investors have been in for so long. Can that survive based on what we're seeing everywhere else? So it certainly was there yesterday. It was an amazing day yesterday right. because, as you pointed out, we, we were down <laughs> over 2% in the Nasdaq. People were talking about a correction, a 10% move. And next thing we know, we close higher on the day. The buy the dip mentality is still there and it will remain there because people want to see Fed action. They know that the Fed hasn't had the stomach to go through with things in the past. And there's quite a few people on Wall Street that still believe that the Fed will not be able to go through it. The problem is inflation. And if we get a 7% print tomorrow, the Fed will be in a very difficult position. How do they handle this, Mohammed? Do they have to be brave? Well, They've got to be brave. It's a little bit like a parent with a child where the child has got way too many sweets. At some oh, point, you have go. to take it away <laughs> and there'll be a tantrum. But you've got you've got I mean, the alternative is worse. That's the trouble is that you can there is no better alternative. Yeah, we've discussed in the past, you end up with false teeth if you're not careful. And uh, no one wants that at this stage, particularly as a child. Um, what's it going to mean for other assets? I think when we talk about a tightening interest rate regime, particularly in the United States, you have to look at other areas of the world like emerging markets still struggling with COVID, in many cases less vaccinated than the developed markets. We've also got the calculation that you have to make over China and what their growth profile looks like. What about for the rest of the world, Mohammed? What are you thinking there? So I think the IMF warning was very clear yesterday, and I agree right. with it, which is this is going to be a difficult global environment. Global growth is slowing. China is slowing. And in addition, you have the possibility of financial condition tightening. So individual countries are going to have to do their homework and try to build as much resilience as possible. You know, it's hard to be a good house in a difficult neighborhood, and the neighborhood is getting more difficult this year. So the only thing we guarantee this year is greater volatility. Do you think the markets overall, and I'm talking stocks, and you can make it broader if you like, end up higher 
on the year overall? Because traditionally, after a good year like we saw last year, you do tend to see gains. Yeah, and, and that shows you how distorted everything is. Is There is a possibility that stocks will end up higher. Why? Because every other asset class is less attractive. So if, even <laughs> if you start with the presumption that you're going to reduce stocks, the other asset classes have gotten so distorted that it's not clear where, where you will go. Will you go into cash, where inflation eats 7% of your value? Will you go into bonds that are most vulnerable to a Fed increasing rates? So in relative terms, we call it the cleanest dirty shirt. It is not a clean shirt, but it's cleaner than the other dirty shirts. Yeah, you go higher and higher up the risk curve too, which brings uh, challenges of its own. What about assets that have thrived on the premise that this easy money is con- going to continue forever? Crypto, for example. Yeah, crypto is tricky, Julia, because crypto has support in terms of people who believe inflation is a problem and crypto can maintain its real value. Um, But there are other assets that have gone up for no other reason than liquidity, and they're going to be at risk. Best advice for investors as we push through 2022? Buckle up and ask yourself a simple mistake. If I end up making, ask yourself a simple question. If I end up making a mistake, what mistake can I not afford to make? And make sure that you're not positioned in a way that's vulnerable to that mistake because the outlook is uncertain and it's going to be quite volatile. Only put at risk what you can afford to lose. Correct. And make sure that, that, that you don't end up doing the wrong thing at, at the wrong time, because volatile markets tend to bring the worst out of us in terms of behavioral mistakes. Yes, humbling, as my first boss at Morgan Stanley used to say, prepare to be humbled. Mohamed Alirian, thank you so much. Mohamed Alirian there, advisor thank you, at Alliance and Gramercy and the president of Queen's College, Cambridge. Happy New Year, sir. Great to chat to you. And to you. Market opens thank next. You. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and another unsettled start to the U.S. trading day. Tech stocks opening lower after Monday's sharp mid-session bounce. Investors, I think, going to be a little bit cautious today, too, ahead of the Fed Chair Jay Powell's congressional testimony. The prospect of less Fed support also hitting riskier assets like growth stocks and crypto to Bitcoin. As you can see there on the screen, falling below $40,000 per Bitcoin for the first time since September in yesterday's trading session. So that was Monday. Bitcoin now down some 40% from recent highs, turning lower, as you can see slightly in recent trade today. Now, changes in the air for low-cost airline Air Asia. The pandemic rewrote the rules of travel and pushed the carrier into plenty of new ventures, among others, a parcel delivery service, a food app and a super app. And now it's even considering a new name. Joining us now is Tony Fernandez, CEO of Air Asia. Tony, always great to have you on the show. I mean, it's been an incredibly challenging two years. It's also been a change, a period of transition for you as a company, raising money, future-proofing, I think you've called it in the past. Are you going to change the name too? Yeah, it's been firstly Happy New Year and great to uh, be on the show, Julia. Uh, yeah, it's been an incredibly tough two years, but rather than yeah. put our heads in the sand, mm-hmm. we kind of restructured the airline and waiting for borders and and the light to open. And uh, we kind of used all our data and our brand to go and build some very exciting uh, digital businesses, which are doing well. At the same time, we raised enough capital for our airline to see us through this period and have started raising capital at our, at our digital businesses. So, um, you know, not, not all bad. It has been very tough, but we seem to be coming out of it. 
and the name change? Well, I don't want to say too much about it just yet because we, we've got to wait for shareholders' approval, which is on the 27th. But um, very briefly, it's kind of trying to tell the world that we're much more than just an airline. When AirAsia Group, which is much more than just AirAsia, the airline, um, but people can't get away from the airline. So we kind of want to tell people that there's a lot more in our company than just uh, AirAsia. Yeah, and, and we will talk more about that too. That was a, a nice springboard for what else you've got going on. But let's talk about the immediate future for the airline mm. industry um, and recovery. Yeah. We were seeing some form of recovery and then Omicron hit and I think people got a little bit nervous. What do you anticipate over the, the coming months in terms of recovery? And do you think we can get full recovery without the removal of PCR tests? Because I know you feel very strongly about this too. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, this time last year, I didn't have any planes flying, so there is some, some, you know, some, some light. We've got yes. domestic yeah. doing very well in all our countries. And uh, we were beginning to have some vaccinated travel planes, and then Omnicon came. But Omnicon's not all bad. I mean, you can see it in the US and Europe and South Africa, and now closer to home, the Philippines, where there's obviously a massive surge. It doesn't create as many deaths or um, hospitalizations. And as quickly goes up, it peaks and then starts to go down. So I'm beginning to think this could be the beginning of the end. We had had many false starts, but uh, here's hoping that we can get back. And I think then the next stage is how do we reopen travel without burdening um, travelers? Um, you see the US and the UK now removing um, entry level PCR tests. And uh, and so I think more lateral flow testing. So I think that will eventually come into Asia. Asia is definitely more conservative, but uh, I am hoping that you know people are beginning to start talking about endemic and living with it. We have the, uh, the Pfizer and Merck pills coming, and mm. the boosters seem to be doing their job. So a, a few you know rough spots in the next six months, but I do think this is the beginning of the end. Uh, I was going to ask you time horizon there because your region does tend to be more conservative. You, do you think it takes perhaps another six months before they start to loosen some of those sort of logistical challenges of the PCR tests and things too? Yeah, I mean, I think, mm. you know, if Omnicon's all over the community, why do we even bother with PCR tests? Because, you know, if one tourist comes in with Omnicon, but the whole of the country has it then it becomes logical. And I think people are beginning to look at that thinking. There are some hard cases, you know, Japan has zero entry, and Hong Kong has, you know, very draconian kind of um, um, enforcement. But I do feel a sense that more and more governments are looking at, you know, we've had enough and it's time to, to move forward and live with this. Yeah, certain parts of your business, and I'll ask you this very quickly, and then we'll talk about the other things, have said, um, yeah. you need a vaccine then you can fly, it's okay. Can you ever imagine a situation where the whole of AirAsia turns around and says, unless you have a vaccine, you're not flying with our airline? Well, well, right now in parts of our airline, we do say that because I know. Many, of the pub, many of the public want that. Um, the, the reality is if you don't have a vaccine, you're not gonna get into any other countries anyway. And, and so, uh, you know, we also have very, very high levels of vaccinations. So um, I think it's inevitable. Um, you've recently seen what's happening in Australia. Mm. But, uh, but you know, hopefully the pills will give people who don't feel comfortable with vaccines an alternative as well. Um, it, it does seem odd, 
But, you know, we have to get back to where we were and it seems vaccine seems to be the only solution right now. Though Omnicon seems to be in some cases another form of vaccine. Yeah, to your point, we do have to find a path back to, to some form of normality. All right, let's talk about some of the other parts of the business and your work on the super app, because as you said, you're raising money, you're investing lots of money in, in these different parts of the business. What are you seeing? And for those that perhaps are looking at holiday options and flight options and some of the other products that you offer, the mm. logistics business as yeah. well, what are you seeing in terms of numbers and activity? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing for us was it was hard to persuade people that you know, a large airline such as ourselves could be nimble and compete with uh, young uh, tech companies. But I think now that is beginning to change very quickly. And they're seeing that our strong brand, um, our very low costs, and uh, our huge amount of data, airline data is incredibly valuable in terms of um, KYC, and it's also a higher spend. Investors are beginning to see, oh, there is, there is something here. So we've split our company into three bits, uh, the super app, which has travel, delivery, and uh, fintech. And then we have a very strong logistics business. And I'll start there. Obviously, one of the benefits of COVID is cargo has really um, been at at record highs. Obviously, with uh, some of the supply issues, um, more and more customers are looking to air freight as opposed to sea freight. There's all the logistical problems in the ports and the difference between sea cost and uh, air cost is narrowing. Um, on top of that, you've got e-commerce and a lot of cross-border commerce now happening. So we're a major beneficiary of that. We're taking freighters now, which we never thought we would. And yeah. uh, obviously, our banks are being filled up. And we, you know, technology has allowed the logistics business to be, um, just like the airline business, allowed the small man to get into it as well and start selling goods from a small little house in Malaysia all over the world. So Teleport, our logistics company, has an excellent um, future. Um, our super app where we're now beginning to see the demand is huge. People want to travel. Domestic travel is at record levels. And uh, tech has enabled us to to offer uh, a huge kind of travel range of options. And then we've got into ride hailing and, and food delivery, which has been uh, incredible. And How finally, many active um, users? How many active users on the Super uh, app? We have about 30 million at the moment. Um, and on any one day, uh, it can be as high as um, you know 10 million. Uh, the beauty of this is that we're now seeing something we never expected. 50% of uh, users are actually users who never flew on AirAsia. So that's a huge bonus. That people are, It's kind of an Amazon moment when they went from books to other things. People are now seeing that I come to AirAsia not just for flights and people who didn't fly with us. So that's a really encouraging sign. We shall continue to track your progress and keep us posted on the name change if and when it happens. <laughs> Great to chat. And congratulations, uh, by the way, on your daughter. You you post about your daughter uh, on social media and she's so cute. I just she is to say. very cute. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. It's, it's kind of like restarting the airline. It's, it's having a kid for the second round. Better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fun and games. Tony Fernandez, CEO of AirAsia. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Okay, still ahead. Batteries are included. But at what cost? With precious metals in precious supply, we speak to the co-founder of Tesla about how to meet the demand for battery parts in future. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move and heading straight into the fast lane. The popularity of electric cars is surging like never before. One study suggests battery electric vehicle sales will reach a market share of 60% in Western Europe alone by 2030. But the key word there actually was battery and making sure the supply of key metals like cobalt and lithium can meet demand. In fact, a study by Linklaters suggests up to $45 billion may need to be invested in mining capacity by 2025 just to meet the demand of EV vehicles. JB Straubel is working to meet those demands. He's the Tesla co-founder and is now the CEO of Redwood Materials, which recycles lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. Among other things, JB, fantastic to have you on the show. You know, when I read what you guys are doing, I had a hallelujah moment because I've never understood how all these car makers are going to fulfill all their promises for EV vehicles and the demand that they're talking about seeing without seeing more mining in some of the least stable parts of the world. You have a solution. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here. And uh, I, I really do believe that this can be a key part of the solution for how we'll meet the supply chain needs for, for all of these new electric vehicles and batteries. You know, are there automakers out there today that are announcing EV production promises that have zero hope of fulfilling those promises without a fundamental change in what we're doing, whether it's more recycling or more mining, as we've suggested? What's your view? I think it's going to be quite challenging for a lot of the the automakers kind of coming into this a bit late and um you know the the market is making a dramatic you know shift the demand shift toward evs is is phenomenal to see it's inspiring to see um but you know securing enough supply of both batteries and all the components that go into them is going to be quite challenging i i think we may see a, a version of the semiconductor shortage, you know, kind of a 2.0 version of that uh, coming in a few years as, you know, so many new automakers ramp up their EV production. Okay, so you saw this. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you were working at Tesla. You went full time at Redwood Materials from 2019. Just explain what you guys are doing more precisely and where your operations stand today. Well, Redwood Materials is a sustainable battery materials company. So, you know, we focus on you know, building a closed loop ecosystem for lithium ion batteries, simply put. Um, we recycle old lithium ion batteries, you know, of all different types, both automotive, but also consumer electronics or lawnmowers. We take the materials out of those batteries, refine them, extract them, and then remanufacture them into new components that can go directly back into battery manufacture. So you can recover more than 95% of the critical materials from the recycled batteries, so lithium, copper, nickel, cobalt, which sounds great, but how much of the battery then that you use is made of recycled parts? Like, what, what's that percent that's passed on effectively? Well, batteries are amazing because they are so recyclable. As you said, you know, more than 90% of the materials, those critical materials in the battery can be reused many, many times without degradation. Um, you know, today, the batteries that, you know, we buy and put into our products admittedly have a still a pretty small recycled material content, but this is changing fast. And I think people are really realizing the benefits of having a high recycled material content both in terms of the environmental footprint of the batteries, but also the cost of those materials. Right. Sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say, so what percent of batteries that are created today 
is recycled material and where do you see that percentage going? Because to your point, surely this is going to be a critical piece of bringing the costs down and making electric vehicles more accessible to the masses. Yeah, today that, that percentage is very small. I would say single digit percent at best um, for batteries across the board. Um, you know, we're demonstrating and showing that you can make batteries that have very high percentage, though, and still have ex- extremely good performance, exceptional life. So I see this eventually, you know, going uh, to be the vast majority of the materials that are going into batteries that will be recycled in the future. And what's that going to mean for price, JB? Well, I think this is, you know, one of the key reasons to do this. You know, normally people think of recycling as a is it a sustainability and environmental solution, which it is, but it also can dramatically reduce the price of those materials. It's cheaper for us today, even at these small scales, to recycle and reuse those materials. So over time, you know, I'm confident this can be one of the biggest uh, cost reduction uh, levers you know, for new lithium-ion batteries as recycling uh, becomes a larger percent of their materials. Elon Musk once said um, that without you, Tesla wouldn't exist. Um, is he being is he being kind, or is that is that correct? Well, I mean, Tesla Tesla was an amazing adventure. Um, you know, uh, I had such a fun time there helping build everything with with the team. But uh, it is a, a wonderful team, and and part of the joy of being there for so long, you know, was the the caliber of the engineers and the the people that made up that group. Um, you know, I still root for the Tesla team every single day. I, I love the mission. And I love the company. <laughs> Um, I think we all need to root for them for the, the sake of, uh, of the planet and the future. Um, but, but I am excited now to work on problems and solve what I think is really a foundational problem for, for the whole electric ecosystem, broader than even just Tesla. Um, you know, these, these things need to get figured out uh, if we're to transition to those high percentages you mentioned at the beginning. I know. I was only asking because I was going to ask you whether he's promised to give you all his re- recycling business over the next 10 to 15 years as some of these Teslas require battery replacements. Well, we're, we're happy to, to help work and work on, on any <laughs> different kinds of vehicles, you know, whether it's a you know, Ford vehicle or, or Tesla battery or, or a consumer battery. They, they can all be recycled in this in a very similar way. Yeah, the opportunities abroad here. What about the costs of doing this, JB? What's the path for you guys uh, to profitability and how much are you investing at this stage? Because surely some part of this as well is ramping up your operations and it is early days. It, it is um, it is a big investment. You know, we're, we're investing uh, several billions of dollars into both our recycling operations and also our manufacturing operations to remake those battery components out of the materials. Um, and that's necessary to, to fully close the loop on these materials. Um, however, as you noted, you know, the investments that have to go into mining new materials are, are, are equal, really significant. So unfortunately, there's no really you know, free pathway through this. You know, it's going to take uh, new capital and investments, whether it's into recycling and remanufacturing, uh, as well as into new mining uh, capacity and, and uh, facilities. You know, a lot of the battery manufacturers at this point in time, at least, are based in China, Japan, uh, South Korea, for example. How do you see that shifting too? Because particularly as we're talking about more electric vehicles in the West, in Europe, in the United States, do we see some of that reshored, the battery production? Because this is also going to be a critical element, I think, in who is uh, most able and focused on the recycling aspect of this too. 
Yeah, it's a great point. And I, I, I do believe that we will see, um, you know, more of that supply chain, you know, spreading out globally and being a bit more diverse. Um, you know, it had it has grown, obviously, from, you know, within Asia. And that's where, you know, a lot of those industries started and uh, matured. But, you know, as the, the world overall, you know, shifts toward electrification, um, you know, we, we have to diversify, you know, that supply chain. Uh, you know, just the cost and the environmental impact of moving those materials, you know, all around the world uh, mm. from Asia is is quite extreme. Uh, you know, it also creates a lot more disruption, capab- you know, possibilities and, and risk. So, you know, a key part of this, and I think recycling uh, does enable this, um, is using the resources that are already brought to those, uh, you know, countries and regions where the, the demand is and reusing them in the same location. So that once we make a battery in North America, we can keep those materials in right. North America. Europe. Yeah, and it ensures your supply chain too, not just for the materials, but access to the products as well. Um, JB, fascinating to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and we'll stay in touch. JB Spiller there. Thank you, sir. All right, up next, not a story for the faint-hearted. Medical history is made as a man receives a heart transplant from, well... Stay watching to find out. And finally, on First Move, a medical first. An American man is said to be doing well after a surgeon's transplanted a pig's heart. The 57-year-old had terminal heart disease and the genetically modified heart was the only possible option. Before the transplant, the genes that caused the human body to reject pig organs were actually removed from the heart, and human genes that helped the immune system were added. Doctors will continue to monitor the patient for a few more weeks. Fingers crossed for him, and what incredible progress in medical science. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe and I'll be back with you in a few moments' time with Connect the World. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.